Hello and welcome to NewsHour from the BBC World Service, coming to you live from London. I'm James Kamarasamy. In the programme, we'll have the latest on the Islamist attack in southwest France. We'll also hear how European leaders have taken a tough line on Russia, and we'll get reaction to President Trump's appointment of a hawkish seasoned diplomat as his new national security adviser. John Bolton has a worldview and a personality type that will help him get along with the, the president. That said, John Bolton is also somebody who doesn't suffer fools gladly. We begin, though, in France, where for the first time since President Macron lifted the terror-related state of emergency, there has been an Islamist-inspired attack. Et donc France Info en édition spéciale et cette commune de 6000 habitants sous le choc trèbe dans l'eau de théâtre aujourd'hui d'une double attaque. This time the rolling news channels were focused on a supermarket in the town of Trèbes in the southwest of the country. Small town not far from the medieval citadel of Carcassonne. It was the place where France's sense of security was once again pierced as a gunman hijacked a car and took hostages in a supermarket. This is what one eyewitness told a French television station during the siege. What I can tell you is that there are police. Everything is blocked by the supermarket. We're not allowed to go near. Everything is blocked. We can't leave. I just saw a lady who was coming to pick up her daughter and her son-in-law, who were at the supermarket in front of my house, and she was told that for the moment she would have to wait. Well, the security forces eventually shot and killed the attacker, but not before three people had been killed and several others wounded, including a senior police officer who swapped himself for hostages. Well, a couple of hours ago, President Macron made a televised address to the nation. Notre pays a subi aujourd'hui... Our country has been subjected today to an Islamist attack in Carcassonne and in Trèbes. A person has killed three people and wounded 16 more, of whom at least two are in a critical state. The security forces intervened with remarkable speed. I wish to pay tribute to their commitment and their professionalism. The president also said that the gunman's background would be investigated. The investigation will have to answer a number of important questions. When and how did he become radicalised? Where did he get the gun? We will use all means necessary to obtain the answers. Daesh has claimed responsibility for the attack, and we're currently looking into that. I've been hearing more about what happened from the BBC's Hugh Schofield in Paris. The events started at 10.30 or so this morning when this man, who's been named as Redouane Lacadima, a 25-year-old from Carcassonne, started this spree, and he started it with the carjacking, it seems, shooting the occupants of the car, killing one, seriously injuring the other, taking the car then, driving, first of all, to a barracks, an army barracks, and waiting there, apparently, to see if soldiers would come out, presumably to target them, That didn't happen, so he moved on then to the CRS barracks. That's the riot police who have evidently some kind of accommodation there. And uh, that was where he spotted a group of CRS coming back from their jogging. He opens fire on them, the four police officers, riot police officers, seriously injuring one of them, then drives off 
to the supermarket in Trebes, not too far away from Carcassonne, and that's where it all reaches its denouement. He goes in shooting his weapon, claiming to be avenging Syria, claiming to be acting on as a soldier of so-called Daesh, Islamic State. Two people are killed then, and a worker at the shop and a customer. Then we have the situation where the gendarme arrive, and this has just been confirmed by the prosecutor, the main prosecutor on, on terrorist-related offences, who's given a press conference. There was this sort of act of heroism on the part of the senior gendarme, who it now appears did not swap himself for one hostage, but in a deal said, let all the hostages out, I'll come in. So the swap was for all the hostages that the gunman was holding. So this senior officer, Lieutenant Colonel the gendarmerie, becomes the hostage. What happens then is not clear, but at some point the gunman starts shooting at the officer that he has hostage, and that triggers the assault by the special forces who by this time have surrounded the place. The hero officer is very seriously wounded, presumably by the gunman, and the gunman is himself killed. And, and that is the long and short of it. It lasted three and a half hours, but it was very dramatic. And briefly, Hugh, was this man on the, the radar of the authorities? In the broadest possible sense, yes, but uh, in any kind of meaningful way, no. I mean, he was once again a petty criminal who'd been in trouble for uh, carrying a weapon, for drugs offences. He had been looked at as a possible Salafist radical, but they'd come to the conclusion, the intelligence services, that there were no, this is, I'm quoting the prosecutor, there were no signs that would be interpreted as precursors to passage l'acte, to carrying out an attack. So he was not followed subsequently. And I think that is an indication, once again, of just how many people People there are on any potential watch list and they can't possibly keep tabs of them all. And that was BBC's Hugh Schofield in Paris. And a short while ago, the Paris prosecutor, François Molin, told a news conference in Trèbes that an individual connected to the gunman had been taken into custody. Well, I've been discussing the wide implications of uh, the events of today with Azim El Defraoui, who's a political scientist and an advisor to the French authorities on jihadism. So I asked him, could this attack have been prevented? It's not only in France, I believe all over Europe, it's very, very hard to prevent this kind of attacks. This kind of attacks is very expected, but I mean, we have been hearing warnings all around that Daesh, the so-called Islamic State, might disappear, but this is by far not a guarantee to um, avoid attacks wherever in Europe. And in some ways, people have been expecting this attacks because as the so-called Islamic State is weakened militarily in Syria and Iraq, it has been called um, for a long time on its sympathizers in Europe, as particularly in France, to commit attacks with whatever means. We have seen um, this kind of attacks in the heart of London. What is interesting here is that it's an attack in rural France on the French countryside from somebody who has been recognised as radicalised. We, we know and, that, um, do we? We know that, but we don't know how radicalised he was. But um, we know that he was condemned for a pretty crime, and this morning was talk about that people felt that he was radicalised. France is quite, uh, confronted, same as Great Britain, and Germany, other European countries, of nearly undetectable sympathy um, terrorists who are close, um, who pledge allegiance to the Islamic State. Nearly undetectable. That's a worrying phrase for the general public across Europe. Yeah, it's a worrying phrase, but um, security services are progressing. Our knowledge about jihadism is progressing. And um, nearly undetectable doesn't mean that they're totally undetectable. It just takes thorough work um, by the security services, but also by people on the ground, social workers, to find out uh, which part of the population 
um, is at risk without stigmatizing young, often immigrant Muslim populations or young French people converted to Islam. And conversion to Islam is no danger at all. So it's a very delicate line. So as this threat, the nature of it, at least the move from city to rural or less urban areas and the, the changing nature, perhaps, of the, the tactics of those who wish to commit these kind of acts, is France, are the French authorities changing their approach? Yeah, obviously, but I mean, it's, it's, um, it's learning by doing. The French didn't have much experience with this kind of terrorism. It takes a long time. I mean, you need to buy, reach out to local populations. Under Nicolas Sarkozy, the um, French secret service were reorganized on an internal level, in a sense that they were more centralized. They lost, they lost a lot of local captors. Local human intelligence was lost, and people are trying to build this up. To build up human intelligence on a local level, you need to build up also a level of trust, which has been lost uh, many years ago, and it's a very, very slow process. At the same time, um, it will be very, very long-lasting effort. You know, never keep out of sight that it's an ideology which has been here for the last 20 or 30 years and which might persist. While these bonds of trust are being formed, while social workers and others are being trained, it makes France and other countries very vulnerable, doesn't it? Politicians have been honest enough all around Europe in saying, like, it's a challenge, but we really need to make this um, a long-term effort. At the same time, you know, we didn't have any large-scale attacks, which is a huge success. The most uh, dominant jihadi movement, and I'm talking about um, the so-called Islamic State, wasn't able to organize um, large-scale attacks like um, happened in, throughout the last years in Brussels or in Paris. So the smaller attacks might happen still, but with this very long-term effort, I think at some stage we will get to grasp jihadism. But this also doesn't imply only local effort. It applies like really geopolitical efforts, you know, solidarity with the countries in the South and Mediterranean, where there are huge socioeconomic crises. I mean, we have left um, the Syrian civil war, um, which is getting worse and worse, going on for years. You know, Daesh might be weakened for a time being, and the so-called Islamic State in Syria. But at the same time, the civil war is worsening with Russians present, with Turkish present, with the Americans. Asim El Defraoui, who advises the French authorities on jihadism. The political tensions in the Spanish region of Catalonia have rather gone under the radar in recent weeks, but they have reappeared today in somewhat dramatic fashion. A Spanish judge has jailed five Catalan separatist politicians, including the latest candidate for regional president, Jordi Turull. Well, Celia Senadas is a journalist for Catalan Public Radio in Barcelona. So why have these people been jailed? The judge has considered they could be guilty of several very important criminal offences, like maybe rebellion, for example. So that's why they've been ordered to go to jail, a decision that's very, really controversial in this uh, political climate we are going through for the last six months in Catalonia. And at this time, there are demonstrations being held in all big and medium cities in Catalonia against uh, this decision. Yes, six months, as you say. I think people listening might have rather lost track of where things are at the moment. Uh, We had the independence referendum. We had the authorities in Madrid essentially taking control. Where do things stand at the moment? Yesterday, uh, there was an intent by the Catalan parliament to choose a president. It was the third intent because the first two candidates, one was Carlos Puigdemont, uh, the current president, who is in exile, And the second candidate was one that is already in prison. So this was the third attempt to uh, choose and swear in a Catalan president. This uh, attempt failed. 
And today this ha we had this uh, judiciary uh, decision that it's putting in prison this third candidate, Jordi Turul. I would like to say that I believe this is an sharp escalation on the ongoing crackdown on pro-independence movements and politicians here in Catalonia. And I would like to remind also that uh, it's the European democracy we are talking about, that I believe the problem is that this so-called democracy has been unable to address politically a political question or issue half of the Catalan population asking for independence. And as you said also, the calendar has been long, six months, a lot of things have happened. But we have to remember that we had snap elections in December here in Catalonia. They were called by the Spanish government, who is now ruling Catalonia. And we haven't have a, we haven't a government yet. It has been impossible to sworn in uh, anybody. And for the people who are not familiar with, with uh, the situation, I have to remind that there were already four uh, politicians or civic leaders in prison, six in exile, another one left today, and today five more are going to prison. Celia Sanadas there, a journalist with Catalan Public Radio in Barcelona, on the jailing of those five Catalan separatist politicians, including the latest candidate for regional president. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour, coming to you live from London with James Kamarasamy. Coming up later on in the programme, we'll be finding out more about the Icelandic composer Jon Leifs, who's been chosen to kick off the country's centenary celebrations. He's a composer who, who composed pieces of music describing Icelandic waterfalls, geysers, ice caps in the ocean, etc. Much more on him before the end of the programme. Now a reminder of our main headlines. A Spanish judge has detained Jordi Turull, the man nominated by pro-independence parties in Catalonia to head the regional government, along with four other separatist leaders. A French policeman who swapped places with a hostage during an Islamist attack is fighting for his life in hospital. The gunman is dead. And the Democratic Republic of Congo says it will not attend a UN-sponsored donor conference in Geneva next month because its image with investors is being harmed. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. The French President Emmanuel Macron has said that a number of European Union countries, including France and Germany, will soon announce coordinated measures against Russia following the nerve agent attack on a former Russian double agent in Britain. He classed what had happened as an attack on European sovereignty. President Macron was speaking as EU leaders met in Brussels for a summit that struck a more strident tone towards Russia and a warmer one towards Britain, as our Europe correspondent Kevin Connolly has been telling me. I thought diplomatically it was a very, very interesting day in Brussels. You know, after a year of Brexit-induced frostiness when the UK has not been flavour of the year among its uh, European Union partners, today you suddenly saw the French President and the German Chancellor standing side by side giving one of their joint news conferences, entirely endorsing the British perspective on the Salisbury nerve agent attack, echoing the view that there's no plausible alternative suspect beyond Russia. Now, I think a great deal will depend in terms of escalation, in terms of where this goes next, on what happens next week, because all of the talk here 
is that some European Union member states will follow Britain in expelling Russians who are working under diplomatic cover in their countries. Now, of course, those member states who are most hostile to Russia, like the Baltic republics, once occupied, of course, by the Soviet Union, they are the likeliest to take that course of action. But it suddenly feels as though the UK is at the centre of events here in a very positive way. And if you listen to the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker, I think he got an overall feel of the diplomatic state of play. We decided to call back our European ambassador in Moscow, first to debrief him on the outcome and the development of the discussions we had yesterday night, and second to listen to him when he is explaining what is happening in Russia. This is an extraordinary measure. We never took it before. But not everyone is on side, are they? Kevin, I mean, not every EU country feels the same way about Russia. I think that's right. Unanimity on foreign policy issues actually is, is quite often difficult for the European Union because, of course, member states have their different histories, different former imperial possessions, different views of uh, European strategy. You know, the Greeks simply don't view the Russians as a strategic threat or a potential enemy in the way some other European countries like the Baltic republics do. And there are plenty of European states who just take the practical view that at moments like this, you have to be rather careful how you treat one of your primary suppliers of gas and energy. So it is difficult to get the European Union to speak with a single voice, particularly, I think, on Russia. And that makes the unanimity of the language on all of this, I think, even more noteworthy. And I think... What's interesting in terms of the overall sort of global politics of it is in the old days, the days of the Soviet Union, this kind of tit-for-tat expulsion crisis would have been played out without the Russians really saying very much in public. These days, I think they feel they are masters of the international media. I think you can expect them to push back strongly in the public domain like that. And, of course, if there are expulsions in the Baltic states, you might expect the Russians, once again, as they did with the British, to respond in kind with expulsions of their own. Kevin Connolly in Brussels. The Syrian government's month-long offensive against the besieged Damascus suburb of eastern Ghouta seems to have squeezed the fight out of the rebels there. It was reported today a deal has been done with a second set of fighters the day after members of another group was bussed out of the region in the first evacuation of its kind in eastern Ghouta. Hundreds of civilians have also been crossing into government-controlled areas this week, although others have not been able to escape. While the dynamic of the war may have shifted, after seven years of fighting, ordinary Syrians are still in the firing line. Well, the BBC's Caroline Hawley has been following the progress of one young war victim, a boy as old as the conflict itself, who bears the physical and mental scars common to many in his homeland. Seven-year-old Mustafa now lives in the Jordanian capital, Amman. His home in Syria was hit by a barrel bomb in 2014, just an hour before his family was due to leave. In the suburbs of Amman, a group of children helped their friend Mustafa onto the school bus. He flashes me a cheeky smile as they set off. As the school bell rings, he limps upstairs to class. One, two, three. Three. Excellent, Mustafa. Three. Three. Mustafa's really enthusiastic and all the teachers adore him and they say his classmates love him too. He's quick to put his hand up, his good hand, because his left hand barely works at all. A blue... Excellent. 
Mustafa was injured when a barrel bomb hit his family home near Aleppo four years ago. It killed his parents, broke both of his hips, cracked his skull and lodged a piece of shrapnel in his brain, causing him severe nerve damage and partial paralysis down his left side. This is now a kind of free-form PE session on a scruffy patch of concrete and Mustafa is here running around, his left leg dragging as he goes. But what's incredibly impressive is the way he keeps going, trying to keep up with his classmates, trying to run with the boys and then, when it doesn't work, sitting down in a circle with the girls. Back home, Mustafa arrives in the building which houses widows and orphans of Syria's war. The first person he looks for is his grandmother Fadila. She gently washes his feet. One of his legs is now longer than the other because of his injuries. It's so hard for him to move, she needs to dress as well as bathe him. She worries endlessly about him and his little sister Dua. Every night as I lie down next to them, I look at them and think what will become of them when I die. That's why I want to be resettled abroad. Maybe Mustafa could be operated on. When I cry, he tells me, don't cry, my father is in heaven, don't cry, I am a big boy now. And in the future, I will take care of you and my sister. Daddy is in heaven. Fadila shows me a picture of Mustafa's dad, Ibrahim, her youngest son, a good-looking man who, she says, was so like Mustafa. Last year, when I came to see Mustafa, he remembered his parents tucking him up in bed at night. But now that memory's gone. He only seems to know what his grandmother has told him of the night Ibrahim died, trying to save Mustafa. He threw him to the ground. He was scared for him. He didn't worry about his own life. When he saw the fighter jet, he threw him clear. He was carrying me. He was afraid for me. He put me down. He died and I was hurt. Once a week, Mustafa comes for physiotherapy. She's trying to get him to clap his hands together. It's really hard for him, but Mustafa never complains. He's a very good boy. He has a very bad story. No dad, no mother. He called me sometimes, Mom, you are my mom. Can you be my mom? I love him. I treat him as, uh, as he's my son. He's really my son. I treat him this way because he needed it. He needed it emotionally. Mustafa desperately needs more treatment. I've visited him for three years now, and physically, life is as much a challenge as ever. But when I ask him what makes him feel angry or sad, his answer, again with that smile, is nothing. Caroline Hawley there, talking to now seven-year-old Mustafa and his grandmother. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Carrie Gracie, and until recently, I was the BBC's China editor. Well, I've got something really exciting to tell you. I'm now presenting The Real Story podcast. It's also made by the BBC World Service. 
We take a single topic in and around the news and we examine it in depth, one hour, one topic every week. The idea is to give important issues just that bit more space to breathe. So if you're looking for a slower look at our fast-changing world, search for The Real Story wherever you find your podcasts. Coming up next, we'll take a closer look at John Bolton, President Trump's new national security adviser. We'll speak to someone who worked alongside him under President George W. Bush and we'll hear from an Iran expert about his hawkish views. First, though, we're going to go to Afghanistan, where there are allegations that Russia has been involved in supporting and funding the Taliban. This report from our South Asia correspondent, Justin Rowlatt. I'm flying over one of the most dangerous places on Earth. Currently, we are uh, about 100 miles south of Bagram Air Base, heading uh, northeastbound. We're high above the snowy ISIS-infested mountains of northeastern Afghanistan. We're in a KC-135, what the American Air Force call a stratotanker. The tankers are the, uh, the backbone of the entire air campaign. So I got eyes on him. He's a stern. Lying in the belly of the plane, peering out through a window, I see the F-16 fighter jets, the Vipers, lining up to take on fuel. Sears look good, nice and stable. At 20,000 feet and 500 miles an hour, it's extraordinary that these wasp-like planes can dock so easily. All right, disconnect. Minutes later, a full load of fuel on board and they're ready to get back into the fight. Providing air cover for Afghan forces battling insurgent fighters. But 17 years into this war and Russian interference is making the conflict even more complicated. According to General John Nicholson, the commander of US and NATO forces in Afghanistan. Well, what we have seen is destabilizing activity by the Russians. We see a a narrative that's being used that grossly exaggerates the number of ISIS fighters here. This narrative then is used as a justification for the Russians to legitimize the actions of the Taliban and provide some degree of support. We've had stories written by the Taliban that have appeared in the media about financial support provided by the enemy. We've had weapons brought to this headquarters and given to us by Afghan leaders and said this was given by the Russians to the Taliban. We know that the Russians are involved. Russian involvement in Afghanistan certainly complicates the conflict and could even affect the prospects of ending the war here. Last month, the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, made an unprecedented bid for peace, offering a wide-ranging and generous amnesty for Taliban leaders who join negotiations. But there has been no response yet. The Taliban have rejected such offers in the past and the fear is foreign meddling in Afghanistan is only likely to make peace in this fractured country even more elusive. And that was our South Asia correspondent Justin Rolat reporting from Afghanistan. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. This is News Hour from the BBC World Service coming to you live from London with James Kamara Sami. 
So it appears that, contrary to the rumours that were swirling or perhaps twirling around, President Trump can get past the issue of facial hair. After dispensing for various reasons with two military men, he has chosen a famously blunt-speaking, mustachioed hawk to be his latest national security adviser. The former US ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton, who has advocated a hard line on Iran and North Korea, insisting recently, for example, that it's perfectly legitimate for the United States to preemptively strike at Pyongyang. As for his views on his new boss, this is what Mr Bolton told me about the then presidential nominee Trump when I interviewed him at the Republican National Convention in 2016. Donald Trump has had no experience in uh, senior levels of the U.S. government. I happen to think that's an entirely good thing because I think part of the sclerotic nature of our uh, functioning government in this country now is that we haven't had people who are able to think outside the box. Nobody comes to the American presidency 360 degrees prepared. Mr Bolton, of course, has plenty of experience in government and a record that worries some people who have served with him. Among them, Matthew Waxman, a professor of law at Columbia University in New York and a former senior official in the George W. Bush administration. So I think he is a danger. Most of the commentary has focused on his very hardline hawkish views, and and those are worrying to me. What I think makes him so dangerous is his effectiveness, that unlike his predecessors in the Trump administration, this is somebody in John Bolton who is a masterful bureaucratic operator, a very effective negotiator, and is very, very diligent and careful in his work. So I think he's somebody who will be able to implement some of the president's most dangerous instincts, um, which until now have been checked really by the White House's incompetence. Well, that's a fairly sorry state of affairs, isn't it? To be breathing a sigh of relief about incompetence and, and being slightly concerned about competence coming into the White House. Well, that's right. That's not a a position I normally find myself. I have to say, until now, I've been somewhat relieved by the fact that the Trump administration has come in, led by a president who has not himself been an effective manager and has not surrounded himself with uh, effective staff members. And so, in a sense, he has checked himself. Now he's uh, bringing in somebody, and, you know, it remains to be seen how well he and John Bolton will work together. But John Bolton is somebody who is an extraordinarily effective operator and could move the president's policy agenda, especially in areas like Iran, North Korea, move them in some potentially very dangerous ways. Do you think, though, the president will take notice of his views or is he not someone who goes with his own gut instincts? I think the president normally goes with his gut instinct and my sense is that in year two of the administration, he's even more inclined to do so. I think he's probably gained, if anything, more confidence in his own gut. That said, I think John Bolton will be more effective than either of his predecessors, very briefly, Mike Flynn, and uh, more recently, H.R. McMaster. Bolton will be more effective, I think, in communicating and building a rapport with the president. And that's because John Bolton, on the one hand, is extremely smart, 
clever, uh, uh, knows the details of issues well, but he's also very, very good at packaging up uh, policy ideas into sort of hawkish, Fox Newsy sound bites that will appeal to the president. So someone who's a details man, someone who you say is a, a crafty negotiator, a masterful bureaucratic tactician. But I guess all of that will come to naught if he can't get on with Donald Trump. We've seen just how many people have left this administration. Do you think he will get on with the president? My gut instinct tells me that at least for a while they will. But I've stopped trying to predict who's going to be up and who's down with the president. He's too unpredictable. I think John Bolton has a worldview and a personality type that will help him get along with the the president. That said... John Bolton is also somebody who doesn't suffer fools gladly. And this is a White House that is filled with some, I'd probably say fools or foreign policy ignoramuses. And it may be hard for John Bolton to hide that. I mean, it's also possible that Trump, for a number of reasons, could turn on Bolton. And there are some issues like Russia on which they really don't agree. Just to end on a slightly flippant note, do you think he'll keep his moustache? (laughs) I've wondered about that, too. I thought a sure sign that he was going to get the job is if all of a sudden we saw him without it. I assume that was not made a a condition. This this is because, just for people listening, this is because it was rumoured, it's been rumoured that President Trump is a bit suspicious of uh, moustaches. That's right. And he seems to like to appoint people who sort of look the part. And I think for Trump, something about a mustache that just doesn't look the part of a a national security advisor. But he seems to have at least accepted it maybe as uh, as part of negotiations for coming into the job. And that was Matthew Waxman, professor of law at Columbia University in New York, former senior official in the George W. Bush administration. Well, Iran has condemned John Bolton's appointment because of his hawkish views. And in May, President Trump will have to renew sanctions waivers. He could effectively withdraw from the Iran deal at that point, an agreement that was struck in 2015, of course, between Iran and six world powers that lifted many economic sanctions in return for tight controls over Iran's nuclear energy programme. Well, Mr Trump has called the agreement the worst deal ever. So what does the appointment of John Bolton mean for the nuclear deal? Well, Esfandiar Batman-Gelich is founder of the Europe-Iran Forum, an annual gathering for businessmen and politicians committed to Iran's economic development. I think the uh, the double header of having Pompeo replace Tillerson and now uh, Bolton replace McMaster... In the, makes in the State it, Department. In the State Department, correct, makes it very clear that... Uh, the Trump administration almost certainly is going to uh, decide not to issue those those waivers on May 12th, which would effectively take the United States out of the uh, Iran nuclear deal. Nothing that can be done by all those other countries that back it to save the deal. Well, one of the things that was very clear when I was speaking to stakeholders in Iran is that there's a little bit of a sense of um, that they saw this coming. The European governments, France, UK, Germany, have uh, taken the last few months to try and come up with a fix to the deal that would be uh, approved by Trump and as a way to try and keep him in the game. But unfortunately, it seems that that has been a bit of a waste of time, certainly from the Iranian perspective, because it has made Iran look weak in that process. And the Europeans have been negotiating with a team that's no longer in place. 
And finally, it, be- it has become clear, I think particularly with the choice of Bolton, given his views that even if a fix had been devised, it's unlikely that Trump would have accepted it. So what needs to happen now is a real contingency plan for how do you keep Iran on side, even without the nuclear deal in place. So is there a plan B? My impression is that the uh, European Union and the E3 governments, France, Germany, the UK, have really failed to actually start coming up with a plan B as of yet. They need to both come up with an economic component to protect the economic dividend of the nuclear deal that's so important for Iran and particularly for the Iranian people. And they also need to come up with a political mechanism to ensure that Iran feels that it's worthwhile to engage with Europe, with Russia and China, despite the fact that they have failed to, in a sense, protect this agreement from uh, what they perceive as uh, an aggressive U.S. posture. Just briefly, one other issue that's come into the headlines today, the United States charging nine Iranians with hacking into hundreds of universities and companies. What do you make of that? Well, I think it's actually a really interesting lens on the Trump administration policy. On one hand, it's all about seeming tough. But if you look at it in the wider context, uh, that kind of enforcement action was also taking place during the Obama administration. They weren't shy about using sanctions to punish Iranian misdeeds. The difference is that the Treasury Department, which issued these uh, sanctions today for these individuals, has another responsibility, which is also to issue licenses that make business and trade uh, for European and American companies with Iran permissible. What's notable is that the Trump administration has not issued a single new license to permit that kind of activity. And so what we see is a policy that's completely focused on Uh, negative punishments rather than positive reinforcement and rather than simply come across as tough, I think it's uh, ultimately a very deficient and short-sighted policy. Esfandia Batman-Gelic, founder of the Iran, uh, the Europe-Iran Forum. A new intergovernmental study suggests that the decline in the variety of plant and animal life is endangering the quality of human life everywhere. Scientists say that problems such as pollution, climate change and deforestation could lead to half of all bird and mammal species in Africa disappearing by the end of the century, while viable fishing stocks in the Asia-Pacific region could run out within 30 years. Dr Emma Archer is from the South African Council for Scientific and Industrial Research and is co-chair of the African assessment of this study. So what exactly are the consequences of this for humans? What we need to remember is that biodiversity is essential for human life and for human well-being. Biodiversity underlies economies, livelihoods, food security and the quality of life for humans around the world. So biodiversity isn't simply an academic topic or an environmental topic. It is fundamental to human well-being on the planet. So as biodiversity declines and as biodiversity is being lost in every region in the world, accordingly it's endangering economies, livelihoods and food security and human well-being around the planet. So Africa, your area of, of particular expertise, what are the potential impacts? How serious is it for the continent? Well, we have some quite serious findings. So Africa is extremely vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, for example. By 2100, climate change is projected to, it could result in the loss of more than half of African bird and mammal species, as well as a 20 to 30% decline in the productivity of African lakes. 
Why is that important? Because, of course, on the continent of Africa, biodiversity and ecosystem services are fundamental to well-being and sustainable livelihoods, as well as food security. If we lose biodiversity, for example, agriculture is fundamentally affected by the loss of some of the support systems that biodiversity provides us. Tell us there is some good news out there that conservation at least is is having a, a positive effect. Absolutely. So one of the things that we try to do as scientists is to balance bad news with good news and lessons and best practice that we can learn from. So there are measures being taken on the continent of Africa that has contributed to some recovery of threatened species. Good examples include things like protected areas and expansion of protected areas. But outside of formal areas, the expansion of things like wildlife corridors that allow us to focus on conservation of threatened species outside of protected areas in multifunctional landscapes where people and wildlife can coexist. Dr. Emma Archer from the South African Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, who was co-chair of the African Assessment of this International Study of Biodiversity, and she was speaking to me from Medellin in Colombia. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. Reminder of our top story this hour, a French policeman who swapped places with hostages during an Islamist attack is fighting for his life in hospital. The gunman is dead. Azim El Difraoui, who advises the French authorities on jihadism, told Newsau that the threat from the Islamic State group hasn't diminished. In some ways, people have been expecting these attacks because as the so-called Islamic State is weakened militarily in Syria and Iraq, it has been called for a long time on its sympathizers in Europe, particularly in France, to commit attacks with whatever means. It's a tremendous challenge on the long run, which is true for all of Europe. It will be a very, very long-lasting effort. One other headline at this hour, a Spanish judge has detained Jordi Turuy, the man nominated by pro-independence parties in Catalonia to head the regional government, along with four other separatist leaders. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service with me, James Kimarasamy. It is 100 years since Iceland gained its independence from Denmark and to kick off the celebrations marking a century of national sovereignty, the Iceland Symphony Orchestra is tonight playing the world premiere of Edda's II, The Lives of the Gods, an oratorio by the founding father of Icelandic music, Jon Leifs. Well, I've been hearing more about him and his work from Arne Heimir Ingolson, the artistic advisor to the Iceland Symphony Orchestra and biographer of Jon Leifs. Jon Leifs is pretty much Iceland's national composer, if you will. He was born in 1899. He travelled around Iceland collecting folk songs in the 1920s and then used them as the basis for his style. He was also very much a modern composer. He was kind of like Bartók in a way because he, he wanted to create new modern music for the 20th century but also to base it on folk experience, folk art. And he was also very concerned with the ancient tradition of Icelandic literature. And Leifs, he was a nationalist in the sense that he's raised during the period when Iceland is still a very impoverished Danish colony. So he was very eager for Iceland to become independent, which it did in 1918. He was also very concerned that Iceland might again lose its independence unless it had a very 
strong foundation in terms of its own culture that would then become the foundation to make sure that Iceland's independence would be lasting. So is he someone who has captured the essence of Iceland, would you say? I think so. I think both in terms of the literature, which is very important to to Icelanders, in terms of this folk-derived style, which has very sort of clear Icelandic connotations. He uses, for example, parallel fifths a lot. Singing in parallel fifths in Iceland was practiced for much longer than, than in many other countries. But then also a very specific association with nature. He's a composer who who composed pieces of music describing Icelandic waterfalls, geysers, ice caps in the ocean, etc. Volcanoes erupting, that kind of thing. So he was very concerned with really capturing the essence of Iceland in sound. And as you've illustrated there, its its landscape is a landscape many would see of, of extremes, of the volcanoes, the the great sort of water features as well. And is that what comes out in his music? Oh, absolutely. It's very much a music of extremes. He liked, for example, using immense percussion sections in his music. Obviously, if you're going to depict a volcano erupting, you need lots of percussionists um, playing not just traditional percussion instruments that you would find in a symphony orchestra, but also rocks and chains and anvils and and things like that. Um, Not not easy listening. Definitely not easy listening and not easy performing either. And that's one of the reasons why some of his works are only now being performed, uh, you know, more than half a century after they've written, is because they are just so demanding, especially on the singers uh, in terms of the the oratorio, that it it took a long time to convince a a choir to actually take this on. Well, you've kindly uh, given us some recordings that were made at the rehearsals so we can get a little sneak preview. Let's hear a little fun bit of it. So just explain what's what's happening there. This is the point in the piece where Loki, who is the, the evil one in the world of the gods, uh, has been caught by the other gods and they want to punish him because he's actually done a terrible thing. He's killed uh, Baldur, who is sort of the, the, the god hero. Uh, and so they want to punish him. So they, they tie him up, put him in a cave, and on top of the cave they put a poisonous snake and he spits poison at Loki. And you actually hear it in the setting. You hear it as these glissandos in the in the orchestra. He was he was very much uh, interested in in these kinds of even very literal depictions in his music. You've got in the the oratorio parts for these ancient uh, S-shaped bronze trumpets that are called Nordic lures, and I think you've got a couple of those on loan from the from the National Museum, haven't you? And and let's have a listen to to them. So there you are, some uh, interesting instruments, and uh, they they present their own challenges. Oh, absolutely. They're they're very difficult to play. Uh, I mean, you know, these are instruments from the the Bronze Age, essentially. They've they've been found, we know that they were played uh, in Scandinavia and in Iceland during the the Middle Ages. Um, And Leif used them quite frequently in his, his 
works actually to give some kind of ancient flavor and it really also visually it just looks like two vikings have appeared in the symphony orchestra it's it's quite striking he was very confident in his own vision of of his music of where icelandic culture should be going and what its place should be in the world at large and just to flip that how important would you say music in itself is in iceland I think music is very important in Iceland and and there's a lot of musical activity going on for a country of only 350,000 people of quite a high standard, but also the fact that different genres of music coexist. I mean, there's actually a lot of sort of collaboration between them. I think it's partly because we have very long, dark, cold winters here and people need to find things to do, obviously. So there's there's a lot of musical activity. There's also a lot of literary activity. I mean, a lot of people, I think we have the highest percentage of a population uh, that actually publishes a book within their lifetime. Just a final thought on, on Iceland, the country. It's been a, a tough decade or so since the financial crisis for Iceland. There have been political upheavals as well. In this centenary year, do you get a sense that, that national pride is, is coming back? Yes, I think so. I think, I mean, I'm not sure it, it ever went away. And certainly we've seen in terms of, for example, football and things like that, you know, things really bring uh, the country... Ah, sore point, yes. <laughs> <laughs> bring the country together. Sorry, England. <laughs> but uh, no, I think it's a really good opportunity to both look back on the past 100 years and also to look look forward in a way. And we've found at, at the Iceland Symphony that really the, the perfect way to, to mark this anniversary in terms of music was to take this you know, 52-year-old piece of music by Leifs, who so clearly embodies Icelandic nationality, nature, independence, culture, the literary tradition in his music, to take it and perform it for the first time. Arnie Hemir Ingolfsson, artistic advisor to the Iceland Symphony Orchestra there on the music of Jon Leifs. Let's leave you with a bit more of that music this time, his earlier Edas One, marking of course now the 100th anniversary of Icelandic independence. From me, James Kamara Sami and the rest of the team, goodbye. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.